Lives Less Ordinary is the podcast from the BBC World Service, bringing you extraordinary personal stories from around the globe. Search for Lives Less Ordinary wherever you get your BBC podcasts. This is Discovery from the BBC World Service, and I'm exploring two stories each week of how insects have transformed our world. As every good entomologist should have on their desk, I have jars of maggots and all sorts of different types but one specifically is a jar of maggots from the family Californidae, blowflies now you'll recognize many of the adults you'll see them flying around they're the giant blue bottles the green bottles really beautiful but i guess many of the people don't like them because of their feeding habits they are some of the very first insects to be attracted to and colonize decomposing remains Over 80% of animals described on our planet are insects. And yet their appearances can seem as alien or as strange as many a mythic beast. For some of us who study these wondrous species, both now and in the past, have discovered a treasure trove of remarkable insights. I'm Erica McAllister, and in this series I'm taking a peek into some of the entomological pioneers whose groundbreaking observations and experiments have led to some truly novel developments. We have a funny relationship with blowflies. Many people dislike them for their habits, whilst others are grateful for their presence. They often live and breed in and around decaying flesh, And due to these life choices, they've become major players in what is called forensic entomology, investigating insects recovered from crime scenes and corpses. And it's these flies' extraordinary ability to sniff out carrion and decaying bodies from many metres away, even when buried or hidden, that marks them out as useful early detectives. But how does this translate into forensic use? Well, first, we need a little background into their life cycle and behaviour. My colleague, forensic entomologist Martin Hall, has been called upon by the police to consult on over 200 cases. And nearly every time, the first question he is asked is, how long has this person been dead? Well, I can't actually tell them that. What I tell them is when the flies found the body. But the reason they ask the insects that question is because pathologists really find it difficult to age a body beyond about three days after death. I mean, obviously, depending on the temperature. And that's really when the insects can help out because when a fly finds a body, she lays her eggs on it. And at the time of egg laying, the fertilisation of those eggs takes place and that starts a biological clock ticking. And that clock will carry on ticking for weeks or even months. And it's my job as a forensic entomologist to try and work out how long that clock's been ticking for. Solving a crime using insect evidence isn't new. It was first documented centuries ago in medieval China, when in 1247 the Chinese lawyer Sung Su wrote a training manual on the criminal investigations called The Collective Cases of Injustice Rectified, or more lyrically, The Washing Away of Wrongs. In it, he recounts the story of a murder near a rice field. The victim had been slashed, most likely with a sickle, a tool commonly used for the rice harvest. But how could the murderer be identified when so many of the workers carried these implements? The local magistrate began the investigation by calling all the local peasants who could be suspects into the village square. Each was to carry their hand sickles to the town square with them. 
Once assembled, the magistrate ordered the ten or so suspects to place their handsickles on the ground in front of them and step back a few yards. It was, as Sung Soo recalls in his manual, a warm day and bright metallic green flies began appearing, soon focusing on just one of the tools lying on the ground. None of the other handsickles had attracted any of these pretty flies. The owner of the tool became very nervous, and it was only a few more moments before all those in the village knew who the murderer was. With head hung in shame and pleading for mercy, the magistrate led the murderer away. Those pretty blowflies that had been attracted to the blood and soft tissue stuck to the handsickle had solved the crime. And justice was served in ancient China. But despite several well-documented historical cases, we have to leap forward several centuries for forensic entomology to become a detective tool in the West. Modern forensic entomology draws on the observations and studies of a host of pioneer researchers, law enforcers and legal representatives, particularly over the last century, who fought to legitimise applying entomology to help resolve unexplained deaths. And this research is still ongoing. Gail Anderson became Canada's first full-time forensic entomologist in the 1990s and is Director of Criminology at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. We can certainly work out whether a body's been moved, whether it's been disturbed. We can use insects to indicate uh, the position of a wound site if they're no longer visible. They can be used in toxicological analysis when the body's too decomposed. Uh, they can be used to extract DNA to see exactly which body they were feeding on. They can do a lot of things. To arrive at any near-accurate estimate of the time between death and discovery, a myriad of factors needs to be determined. The ambient temperature, the amount of clothing, the extent of injury, all influence in the fly's life cycle and that ticking biological clock. One of the big questions is, of course, did they colonise immediately after death or did they colonise a day later, a week later, a month later. Now, that would be unlikely, except maybe the body was buried or maybe it was very cold. Any of these kind of things could delay insect colonisation. Perhaps the greatest test for British forensic entomology was back in 1935 in a landmark case featuring Dr Buck Ruxton, the savage surgeon as he became known. He almost got away with the brutal double killing known as the Jigsaw Murders, only to be thwarted by, amongst other things, flies. Buck Ruxton, he killed his wife and his wife's maid, and being a doctor, he dismembered their bodies, removing key identifying features, and he then drove up to Moffat, and he dropped the body parts over a bridge into a ravine. And it was several days later that a young lady out walking her dog just happened to look over the bridge and, and spot a human limb, and that started the whole investigation. I'm in the Natural History Museum and I've gone up to the spirit collection. And in this container, I have some very special maggots in a jar. I'm just going to read you the label and you can hear why. Because these are the maggots from the bodies of Ruxton's victims, 1935. And then he gives me an alcohol percentage so I know they're probably looked after. Because these are the maggots that were used in the court case to help incriminate the murderer of these two unfortunate victims. Many of the body parts had blowfly maggots or larvae developing on them. And Dr Alexander Meerns of the University of Glasgow 
had developed some methods of aging flies based on the length of the larvae. He was able to work out how old the larvae were and therefore when the flies found the body part and that coincided with when they were dumped in the ravine. That was so important in corroborating other evidence and Buck Ruxton was found guilty and hanged for the crime. Since then, many experiments have been carried out in laboratories and field sites around the world in a bid to learn more about the part insects play in the decomposition process and in the most bizarre of crime scenes. Entomologists, including Gail Anderson, are on a mission to further increase the robustness of that crucial estimate that insects can give in the minimum amount of time a victim has been dead, wherever the body is being concealed. Even in apparently inaccessible places, such as a trunk or a boot of a car. And we're not talking about one type of car here, but many. We use uh, research forests. I'm in Vancouver, so we're surrounded by millions of miles of forest, basically, where we place the vehicles. And, of course, the carcasses are in Western Canada so far, just pigs. We're not allowed to use humans yet, although that is starting Uh, now in Canada. It's it's got to be so hard to try and control all the different ambient factors, all these different things you've got to take measurements of at the same time. So outside temperature, inside temperatures, to understand how the maggots grow in these environments. Yes, we weren't surprised to find that insects got into the trunk of the car quite quickly. Uh, It took them several days, but once Mm -hmm. they got in, they were then in a much more protected environment. So once they got into the bodies, they developed much more rapidly than those outside. But what was really interesting with the cars was we had lots of maggots and skeletonization occurred very, very quickly. But the one car, very few maggots, very, very slow decomposition. And we didn't know why. And then we discovered that that one car had a full metal firewall between the back seat and the trunk, whereas all the other ones had just a piece of mesh holding the back seat up. And so obviously that firewall had blocked the insect's access. So that would be an interesting extra variable that you'd have to take into account. And when you're looking at a car like that, you'd want to know whether or not they had a firewall or not. Amongst these incredible scenarios... A body's even been investigated in a dishwasher. And their influence on that life cycle smoking gun. To me, one of the most exciting breakthroughs is the new approach to putting an age on the pupil development stage of a blowfly. The blowfly may spend half its life as an opaque brown puparium, a seemingly hidden inert stage where its tissues reorganise themselves into the adult structures that we're all familiar with. And for forensic investigations, this can be a hindrance. But CT scanning can be used, in the same way we scan living humans, to build a 3D picture of these otherwise hidden internal structures. Daniel Martin Vega is one of the researchers pioneering this new approach. You are getting X-ray images from every possible angle, and then in a computer you can reconstruct it to obtain your virtual sample that you can virtually dissect in every plane. And you are also Mm -hmm. allowing, for example, the defense and the prosecution to perform independent analysis on the same sample. Crucially, this scanning method greatly increases the accuracy of the estimation of the age of the fly puparia, and so helping to complete the forensic timing of an insect's arrival at the body. For example, you can see in the digestive tract that it changes in morphology. So it goes from going like a close inflated sac to a long and convoluted canal. And you can assign those different changes in morphology to particular times in the developmental cycle. 
So mm -hmm. in the end, uh, you say, well, this, the digestive tract has this morphology that corresponds to this stage of the intrapuparial development. So I would say that my fly is between uh, 12 and 13 days old. So it has been between 12 and 13 days associated with that cadaver. That would be the direct application of all of this. The novel use of technology helps us complete the entomological puzzle. But much like the development of the fly in the puparium, the development of our knowledge of forensic entomology has happened in stops and starts rather than a gradual increase. I mean, even in the beginning, I would get calls from police officers saying, you know, we've, we've got these bugs. And this guy, he sort of said that maybe you could do something with them. I'd say, yes, yes, it's a recognised science. They said, really? Seriously? I thought he was having me on. And now I don't get that. I just get, you know, I'm calling from Nowheresville and I've got these insects. How do I send them to you? So it, it's become very well accepted. And we're learning so much more about insects and the insect relationship with the body. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunities for not just time of death, but many other things that we can also be able to do with insects. And there's so much that we don't yet know. Gail's right. There's so much we don't yet know. In fact, that could be said for all our knowledge about entomology and its host of applications. And it's still evolving. So next time you sit in your garden with a glass in your hand, absently staring at an insect, take a moment to ponder it. And maybe you could be the next person to think about a novel development brought about by these marvellous beasts. You're listening to Discovery from the BBC and I'm exploring how insects have transformed our world. I'm in the collection of the Natural History Museum and I've been handed this draw of charismatic butterflies and one of them completely draws your eye in, the morpho butterfly. Not only is it impressively large, it is metallic blue, so iridescent, you can't help but be drawn to this specimen. And it's not a pigmentation of the wings that is so colourful, but it's the actual structure of the wings themselves that creates such a beautiful blue. Over 80% of animals described on our planet are insects, and yet their appearances can seem as alien or as strange as many a mythic beast. But some of us who study these wondrous species, both now and in the past, have discovered a treasure trove of remarkable insights. Insights that have increased our knowledge across many scientific disciplines. We often think that the vivid butterfly colours are about attracting the opposite sex. But the more we learn about this and the other metallic-looking species, the more we're realising is that they're using colours in many different ways. And it's got us thinking about how they produce this extraordinary colour and how we can develop a range of hues for a host of different endeavours. I'm Erica McAllister, and in this series, I'm taking a peek into some of these entomological pioneers and examining how their groundbreaking observations and experiments have led to some truly innovative developments. There are few of us who haven't come across butterflies. You can't fail to be drawn to their often vibrantly coloured wings as they flit between the hedgerows or flower beds, either dining on nectar or trying to satisfy their urgent need to attract a mate. A gorgeous butterfly rushes out of the gloom into the shade and is in a moment seen to be a painted novelty. Then comes the excitement of pursuit, the disappointment of seeing this beacon dance over a thicket just out of sight. The joy of finding it reappear. 
The intrepid Victorian adventurist and entomologist Margaret Fontaine was drawn to all things butterfly. As a young girl in Norwich, she spent her time sketching cathedrals, exploring botanical gardens and visiting butterfly collections of a family friend. But a rich inheritance left by an uncle bought her independence. For 50 years, she toured the world on her own to follow her passions of art, music and finally butterflies, collecting specimens in 60 countries on six continents. I got some morphos out for you, which are these, these iridescent, mostly blue butterflies from, from South America. Just and her stunning collection of 20,000 butterflies is housed at Norwich Castle Museum, where David Waterhouse is curator. You can see these are perfect specimens. She worked out that if she could study their life cycle, she could raise the caterpillars, maybe 100 caterpillars, from a single fertilised female. She would release most of those back into the wild where she found them, and then she would pin you know, one or two in the collection you can see in front of us here, and they would be perfect. If you look at other Victorian collections, if you just caught a butterfly with a net, they can have broken wings. They're not perfect collections, but Margaret's are. She recorded her observations and experiences in diaries that she took with her everywhere. And her legacy as a lepidopterist, alongside wild and fearless adventures and frequent scandalous encounters, show a woman who was not just a serious scientist, but also a woman who lived her life to the full. So, this, How many have we got here? Um, there's 12 in total, so she had them cloth-bound. Her diaries contain accounts of bicycle trips through France, motorcar excursions across Tenerife. Oh, and here we go. This is actually her. She's in mid-action of gaily swinging her net to catch something. And she's never one to pull her punches about her entomological encounters. In Corsica, Mr Champion who collected beetles, and the brothers Jones. Fly Jones, the slayer of butterflies, and Paint Jones, whose watercolour sketches of Corsican scenery are as full of talent as he is of conceit. Whilst assembling her collection, she was becoming alert to the way nature was acting as an artist. The multiple scales on the morpho butterfly wing causes light to diffract, creating shimmering optical effects and changes in hue according to the angle of inspection. These morphos have been collected from Brazil in 1929 and still they are so, so vibrant. And actually that's the thing with morphos, you've got this iridescence, so mm. it's not a blue pigment. Exactly. Um, the black is a, is a pigment, so I guess if you left these out in the sun, the black would fade through yellows and eventually fade away. But those blues are a structural colour. They are effectively refracted light. We do keep them in the dark, we do look after them, but they also look after themselves. Bright colours are often thought to be an evolutionary trade-off. They can attract a mate, but they may also attract a hungry predator. But back in 1909, the American artist and father of camouflage theory, Abbott Thayer, proposed that these showy splashes of iridescent light from insects could, in a natural setting, act as a highly effective way of hiding them in plain sight. Brilliantly changeable or metallic colours are among the strongest factors in animals' concealment. This almost counterintuitive effect was achieved, he claimed, by the hues of light appearing to flatten an animal's contours and distorting its telltale shape. He held big public demonstrations throughout America. Famous detractors such as big game hunting Teddy Roosevelt 
publicly scoffed at Thayer's thesis, but many zoologists have remained quietly receptive to his idea. Karen Chernsmoo of Bristol University studies how animals use colours and patterns to avoid being eaten by their enemies. The most convincing cases is when we find iridescence in non-reproductive life stages of an animal, such as in beetle grubs or in butterfly chrysalises, because in those stages of the animal life cycles, they aren't sexually reproductive, so they aren't Mm -hmm, trying to signal to, to attract a mate. But they really do need to avoid getting eaten by their enemies. Especially at that stage, they are the most defenceless in many ways. Most of them are very inactive, so they definitely have to disguise themselves. Exactly. And this is the reason why we believe that in those cases, iridescence has an adaptive function to uh, protect them against predation. The animal's surface is, by its iridescence, made to appear dissolved into many depths and distances. Thayer seemed way ahead of his time, not only in suggesting how the best disguises are dazzling, but also in the way the structural colour is created. And thanks to recent developments in electron microscopy, we've now begun to figure out how. By far the most common form of iridescence in beetles is something that we call multilayer iridescence. Because within the cuticle of these iridescent beetles, there are thin parallel multiple layers, most often made of chitin. And as the white light passes through these layers, wave bands of particular sizes will be selectively reflected and others cancelled out, depending on the spacings between these layers. And I think that the easiest way to understand this is if we think of light waves and realize that the different colors of light that we perceive also have different sizes in terms of the lengths of these waves. For example, blue would have a wavelength of around 450 nanometers, green around 540 and so on. So the colors that we perceive when looking at an iridescent beetle will depend on the spacings between the multiple layers in its cuticle because these will allow light waves of particular sizes and their corresponding colours to be reflected whilst others will pass through or be cancelled out. And here at the Natural History Museum in London, we hold the detailed illustrations Margaret Fontaine made of the life cycles of the many colourful insects she collected. And as Special Collections Manager Andrea Hart explains, Margaret was also alert to the extraordinary optical effects this structural colour might have had in deterring predators. She paints and draws, but there's a natural iridescence, the metallic sheen of one of the cocoon, and she's used foil. Which is actually a tobacco package. (laughs) To actually highlight how amazing this is. She has, and if we jump to 1931 and 1939, so these are her final years before, unfortunately, she had the heart attack and passed, but we do see it being used a little bit more in this volume four, where you have got those pieces of gold here you've got the pupa of a a species from uganda this cocoon is predominantly green dangling down but she's so intricate she's actually added these tiny gold specks all the way through it she has and because she's got the host plant you can see also how the camouflage works with a lot of these species as well so that's really useful bits of information there as well and she also talks about how hard sometimes it is to collect these (laughs) things and i'm I'm sure that you're i know that feeling exactly And it's this unique, deceptive property of iridescence, along with some of the most amazing colours we know of in the natural world, that's beginning to attract attention far beyond the realm of insects and their relatives. 
For over three decades, bioengineer Andrew Parker has been trying to recreate the dazzling properties of morpho butterfly cells using tissue cultures in the lab to generate high impact hues for a host of different commercial products. The dream was to have rows and rows of these cells continuously producing scales that we could then maybe put into a paint or something to produce the colour. But unfortunately, it was the end of the line, really, when one cell made only one scale. So more recently, you took a more mechanical engineering approach and you've been adapting industrial machines that you could put objects into, which then come out coated in this pure structural colour. So what happens is very, very fine layers of existing materials such as silicon dioxide, we can make very large quantities of this. And eventually, after a few years, we produce some Nike trainers and they come out with just the brightest colours you've ever seen. It's a deep velvety hue that draws you in. You can almost see movement in it. It's very mesmeric and it's like really like no other colour we have in commerce. And it's just like that colour that you get on a, a morpho butterfly's wing or a peacock's neck. Have you tried these trainers on? Have you walked around in them? They won't let me yet. Oh. Um, <laughs> but um, at the moment, they're all quite valuable. I love this. Butterfly tech on your feet. And um, you're now trying to turn this structural colour into paint. I think if that one works, then that will be a real game changer because the paint, for example, could be a lot lighter in weight. So if you painted a jumbo jet with this type of pure mm. structural colour, it would be a tonne less in weight. How many colours could you produce? That's endless. We can produce not only all the colours in the spectrum, but going down to finer shades, and then we can mix those colours together to produce other hues. And I just see mm. you now with one massive colour chart. Once it enters industry on a large scale, I think it will start to take over. I think this will be something yes. that, that will be, uh, this will be the future of colour. If we could figure out how to control colours from different angles, we may even develop invisible cloaking devices that often appear in science fiction. But be warned, already the concealing properties of butterfly technology are subtly appearing in places where you'd least expect them. Often you see iridescent packaging in the shelves, but iridescence is also making it really difficult to read what the package actually contains. <gasps> I know. <laughs> so sneaky. <laughs> so I think that iridescence can actually be misused in the sense that it can prevent us from recognizing what labels actually are saying. <laughs> <laughs> and it's from the deceptive bling of the butterfly to the original hipster, the black soldier fly, that we turn to next. It only eats organic and was born to recycle. Thanks for listening to Discovery from the BBC World Service. I'm Erica McAllister and the producer was Adrian Washbourne. Catch you next time. I had just come out of one of my bare knuckle boxing matches. I don't know why, but the first thing that came to my brain was, what if I do a drag show? Remarkable personal stories told by the people that lived them. I could easily have pulled that trigger. But that was not my brief. I was not an assassin. I was not told to do that. I was not told to murder him. Lives Less Ordinary from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts.